Welcome to Detroit Opera's Opera Here podcast. This is Andrea Scobie and Arthur White with Detroit Opera. We are thrilled you have joined us today as we take a look at our upcoming production of Handel's Xerxes. We'll dwell more deeply into the life of the composer, take a look at the real-life leader who inspired the story, and welcome a very special guest, countertenor Kiman Mura. Handel's one of those composers whose name is so familiar to us, but he's not often associated with opera. I'd be willing to bet that many of us come to his work through sacred works, through something like The Messiah, but he is an operatic composer. So Arthur, can you tell us more about his life and work? Certainly. George Friedrich Handel was a German-British Baroque composer born in Halle, that's near Leipzig in central Germany, on February 23, 1685. Now, today he is most remembered for his sacred works, like the Messiah you had mentioned, the coronation anthems and organ concertos. But Handel was the most prolific Italian opera composer during the Baroque era. And interestingly enough, he is born the same year as Johann Sebastian Bach, both, you know, famed composers who took different paths musically, uh, but both would be most remembered for their sacred works. At nine years of age, he meets Friedrich Wilhelm Zakau, a choir master in Halle, his only teacher who exposes him to organs, sacred choral music, uh, but also the Italian opera style. Now, Handel completes his studies at the University of Halle, and by 1706, at the age of 21, is invited by the Medici family in Florence, where he writes several well-received operas, including his Agrippina in 1709. Now, in 1711, he visits England for the first time and gains patronage with several commissions, including music for King George II's coronation. So over the next 20 years, Handel is riding high. He starts three opera companies in order to keep up with the English nobility's demand for Italian opera. He ends up premiering the bulk of his 40 operas, and during this time he even becomes a naturalized British subject in 1727. Now also during this time, all the rage taking over the opera and concert stages is the castrato. A castrato is a type of classical male singing voice equivalent to that of a soprano, mezzo-soprano, or contralto. Now, the voice is produced by castration of the male singer before puberty, usually between the ages of 8 and 10 years of age. Now, in the mid-16th century, the Catholic Church begins to make a practice of this to populate their church choirs, uh, usually when they come across a young male singer who has an exceptional voice and talent. Uh, But by the early 17th century, on the operatic stage, the castrato begins to take the female roles. And by late 17th century, the castrato supplants the usual male voices in lead roles and retains this position for almost 100 years. An Italian opera not featuring at least one renowned castrato in the lead part would be doomed to fail. Famed castratos such as Ferri, Farinelli, and Senesino became the first operatic superstars earning enormous fees and hysterical public adulation. Handel, for his operas, attracted the finest castrati for all of his productions. But by the mid-1730s, Italian opera and castratis are becoming less popular, and with this, Handel loses financial support from the king in 1736, and he begins to really struggle financially. Now, the following year, at the age of 54, Handel suffers a stroke which paralyzed his right side. He ends up taking several months 
to recover. He then begins to pen the opera Xerxes, the opera we are talking about today, which he hopes will reverse his financial string of bad luck. Unfortunately, though, the opera was not well received. All of his operas had been composed in the seria style. This is a serious subject matter operas. Uh, but Xerxes is serious and comedic, uh, and the public didn't quite know what to make of it. Now, when Mozart comes along a few years later with his works like Don Giovanni, uh, this combined form is called opera giocosa, or, or drama with jokes, which then becomes very, very popular. Uh, but by 1741, at the age of 56, Handel gives up opera for good and dedicates himself to the sacred works of the Messiah, Solomon, Samson, and Jephthah. By the 19th century, social attitudes toward castratos spelled the end of the practice. Now, the last known castrato is Alessandro Moreschi. Uh, he was born in Italy in 1858 and died in 1922. Now, you can actually find a recording of him on YouTube uh, from a service he sang from the Sistine Chapel in 1904. Now, the recording quality of the time is far from our digital recordings of today, but you can certainly get a sense of what he sounded like. Now today, the castrati roles of the Baroque opera era are now taken up by countertenors. Uh, the countertenor is a type of male singing voice whose vocal range is equivalent to that of the female contralto, mezzo, or soprano voice. The countertenor has a highly developed head voice, or falsetto, uh, and in fact we have an example for you of what a countertenor sounds like. The singer you have just heard was Kiman Mura, one of today's leading countertenors, who is coming to Detroit to portray Xerxes in our production. I cannot wait for Kimon to be here. I cannot wait for audiences to to hear that glorious voice on our stage in person. It's really exciting that he's coming here and that he's going to be taking up this role here in Detroit. Well, you know, it's been 10 years since we have mounted a production of, of an opera from the Baroque era. So uh, I'm sure for some, many of our audiences, this will probably be the first time that I've either heard a, a countertenor uh, in person or perhaps ever before, whether recording or TV or what have you. Yeah, I mean, I've heard countertenor voices in recital, but this will be the first time that I hear one fully in an opera. So I'm, I'm just really excited about that. Yeah. What about you, Arthur? Have you heard countertenors and where? Oh, gosh, I've heard countertenors back. Uh, you know, countertenors kind of had a resurgence uh, at the end of the last century. And so uh, I started hearing countertenors probably when I was back in high school. So this would have been the late 80s. Uh, so I think I heard my first uh, countertenor at that time and been li listening to them uh, ever since. Ever since. Well, Kimon Mura is definitely equal to any of the voices you may have heard, Arthur. Um, it's amazing that he's coming here. He's an incredible artist. He's coming, of course, to take on the role of Xerxes. And he kind of joins a legacy of many performers who have told the story of Xerxes across many artistic mediums. Xerxes' story has really fascinated historians, authors, composers, audience throughout centuries. Xerxes was a real person, Xerxes I, also known as Xerxes the Great. He was born circa 519 BC in modern-day Iran. The name Xerxes that we know him by is actually the Greek version of his name, which would have been Kashayar in Persian. Now, he was the son of the ruler Darius the Great and of Atossa, who was the daughter of Cyrus, who is said to have founded the Persian Empire. Interestingly, Xerxes was named heir by his father, despite the fact that he had three older brothers 
brothers. He had these three brothers who were born to Darius by a different wife. But Darius argued that since Xerxes was his firstborn son after he ascended the throne, that gave him the right to rule. He said that any children who were born before his ascension were born when he was a commoner, and they were also commoners, and they had no right to claim a kingship. Now, some modern scholars believe that this decision was in part influenced by Darius's wish to kind of flaunt his connection to Cyrus the Great through his wife, through his wife and Xerxes' mother, Atossa, uh, who was Cyrus's daughter. And I think that would prove to be an interesting decision for him. In his early adulthood, Xerxes was appointed governor of Babylon, and then he succeeded his father as king when he was in his mid-30s. Some scholars say 32, some scholars say age 35. It's not exactly precise, but regardless, when he was in his 30s, he came to rule, and this transition of power was smooth. His rule went unchallenged. And again, this is attributed to the authority and influence of Atossa, who was his mother. So at the time uh, Xerxes became king, the Persian Empire was at its height. Persian rule was established from India and Central Asia through North Africa, all the way to the eastern shores of the Mediterranean. And Xerxes' father wanted to conquer Greece and expand his empire into Europe, but he was defeated at the Battle of Marathon. So Xerxes, when he ascends to the throne, he's determined to fulfill his father's wishes. And after three full years of preparation, his armies invaded Greece in 480 BCE, with, according According to the Greek historian Herodotus, the largest and most well-equipped fighting force ever assembled at that point. So in order to conquer Greece, Xerxes' troops first had to get there, and they would have done so by crossing the Dardanelle Strait, which was then known as Hellspont. And history tells us that Xerxes ordered two bridges to be built across the water for passage for his armies. A huge storm brews that threatens to destroy the bridges, and that actually did happen. These bridges were destroyed. Now, this is one of my favorite stories about Xerxes. Legend said that he was so angry about this, about the destruction of these bridges in the storm, that first of all, he ordered the bridges builders to be executed, which I don't love. But then he ordered his men to deliver 300 lashes to the water itself as punishment to the water, and then to drop a pair of manacles into the sea to symbolize the water's submission to his rule. So that that is... That is some unhinged behavior there from Xerxes, if legend is to be believed. But after it was all said and done, the bridges were rebuilt. Xerxes' troops crossed into Greece. Their mighty army, though, was defeated by the Greeks. So um, after all of this buildup, Xerxes eventually sees a loss. Eventually, he was murdered by members of his court looking to usurp power. An historical record, which is largely set forth by Alexander the Great, by the Greek historian Herodotus, as I've mentioned, by the Greek playwright Aeschylus, they really saw him as a villain who was brought down by his own pride and arrogance. Some modern historians dispute those portrayals. There are documents from the same era written in Egyptian and Aramaic that have been found to contradict the writings of classical Western authors more broadly. But typically it's believed that the, the portrayal of Herodotus and of Aeschylus is how we remember Xerxes today. But his legacy isn't just confined to history books. As I've said, he's been the subject of lots of pieces of art, including multiple operas, not only Handel's. His exploits appear prominently in Aeschylus's play, The Persians. He appears in the Shamanay, or the Book of Kings, which is an epic poem composed in the 11th century, which details the history and legends of Persia and really helped to preserve the Persian language. Xerxes is the subject of novels from writers from Dutch author Louis Couperus to Gore Vidal to the graphic novelist 
novelist Frank Miller, who wrote a multi-part series on Xerxes that's been adapted to film. If you've seen the movie 300, you would have seen Xerxes in a more modern portrayal. And he's even been immortalized in several video games. So no matter what your chosen mode of entertainment, Xerxes' story is out there to be told and retold. And so here we are, of course, at Detroit Opera getting ready to tell that story again. So that's just a little bit of history of the real figure. We don't see too much of that history, as I've mentioned in the opera, but we do get a really great story. So Arthur, can you give us an overview of the plot of Xerxes? Most certainly. So the opera Xerxes is an opera in three acts set in Persia in 470 BC and loosely based on Xerxes I, as Andrea just indicated. Now, although it is called opera seria, which means serious, which indicates a serious subject, there's a good amount of farce and comedy in it. Uh, and so Xerxes is engaged to Amostris, but he is really in love with Romilda. Now, when he learns that his brother, Arsamene, is in love with Romilda, he is enraged and jealous, and he decides he needs to get rid of his brother, even if it means to banish him. So he spends the opera trying to outsmart and outmaneuver everyone so that he can kidnap Romilda and marry her himself. Uh, but with all the maneuvering, it is Xerxes who has been outsmarted. When he finally uh, arrives to marry Romilda, he learns that she has already been married to his brother. Now, Xerxes uh, takes this all in good humor, uh, and at the end, finally returns to Amostris. So it has a, a happy ending anyway, <laughs> Andrea. Definitely, yeah. I mean, and like you said, unusual for the day, this blend of comedy, this blend of, you know, kind of serious subject matter. I love that we have the chance to see it here in Detroit. Yeah, if uh, if Handel just had 30 more years around the Mozart period, it would have been fine. They said that the audience can take a serious subject with, uh, you know, with fun and jokes and, and, uh, and humor in addition. But I guess at this time in uh, 1738, not so much. Yeah, well, I'm glad that we've evolved so that we can really appreciate the story. I wanted to ask too, Arthur, you know, is there anything you can tell us about Baroque music? You know, as we listen to this opera, what will we hear? What can we expect? Well, you know, the in the Baroque style, I'm, I'm, I'm often reminded of a little bit of a later period, the bel canto era. If you're going to sing this handle, you've got to be an, a vocal Olympian. You've got to be able to sing fast notes with all the runs and flourishes and trills and to be able to do it in tune. You need to be able to hold and sustain a long line in one breath. Uh, and so basically, uh, just listening to just the vocal alone is just uh, enough to make you just have your jaw just drop to the floor listening. So that's what we're expecting at this opera. And I think we'll hear that from the performers who are uh, coming to be part of the production, and none more so than our guest today, Kiman Mara, uh, who's playing Xerxes, joins us uh, now to talk a little bit about his role and to talk about the opera. Arthur, can you go ahead and give us an introduction for him? Our special guest, who hails from Louisville, Kentucky, begins to find his voice early and at home uh, with a mother and a twin brother who both sing. He completes his studies at the University of Kentucky and starts to get noticed with successful appearances in vocal competitions, such as Operalia and the Metropolitan Opera Council auditions. Uh, this leads to young artist programs for Florida Grand Opera, Aspen Opera Theater, and Glimmerglass Opera Festival. His beautiful, warm, and exciting Exciting countertenor recently debuted at the Seattle Opera in Gluck's Orfeo and Eriudice, uh, and he is just finishing a run of Purcell's Dido and Aeneas at the Bavarian State Opera in Munich uh, as he prepares to take up the title role of Xerxes I in Detroit Opera's production of Xerxes. Please welcome Kiman Murat. Thank you, sir, for being here. Great. Thank you for having me. 
It's wonderful to see you, Kiman. You know, I want to start by taking us back to your beginnings. How did you get started in music? And when did you decide to pursue this career as a countertenor? Yeah, um, well, I first started singing in my church. We always had music around because our mother sings. Um, she sings gospel. So we've always had music growing up. She taught us, you know, how to sing. So I was going to go the gospel route until I got into my high school, which is the Youth Performing Arts School. It's a magnet school in our uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. And from then on, I started getting introduced to more, you know, operatic arias and art song. And I'm like, oh, I kind of like this. But at first, I really wasn't sold on it until I got into the Governor's School for the Arts in Kentucky. And that's where I kind of like met my music father, I kind of call him, his A.T. Simpson. He kind of like, he poured into my brother and I. He was giving us free lessons. He still works at the Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky. So he would have us on campus being in his choir. He even had us in some of his history lessons just to make sure, you know, that we had everything. So he prepared us to, to go to, to college. And we both got a full scholarship to the University of Kentucky because of him. So that's where we started. Yeah. Well, shout out to all those amazing educators out there who get us started, right? <laughs> yeah. Indeed. What sort of major shift uh, is involved in going from a tenor to the counter tenor repertory? Um, I don't think it was super major for me because I was in a boys choir as well. The West Performing Arts Academy had a boys choir. So I was singing soprano also from nine to 18, just being in the choir. And so that's at that point before I went to school, I've been singing that. Um, I only switched to tenor because I thought that's what you had to do. You know, growing up, you know, I really didn't see any other people like me being a counter tenor or, you know, things like that. So when I finally decided that I was going to try it, it was more like a dare to myself. You know, I was out of school. I was still taking voice lessons. I still think I could have had a career as a tenor, but I, my heart wasn't into it. So I just tried it. I saw that this small young artist program, Red River Lyric, was doing Julio Cesare. And I'm like, well, I'll just learn a couple of arias and just send it in. And whatever. If it works out, it works out. If, if it doesn't, I'll move on. And from there, I got a call that I got my first role as a countertenor as Ptolemyo in Julio Cesare. And from then on, I got some good feedback. And from then on, I've been a countertenor consistently, professionally, yeah. There is a really big misunderstanding with how countertenors make sound, which I don't feel like it's that different. Actually, I feel like it's very, very, very similar to a woman singing. It's head voice. If we talk about registers, men and women both have the same registers. It's just in different parts of the scale, basically. So men and women both have falsetto and men and women both have chest voice. It's just, you know, how you access it. But when talk a lot of a lot of the times when talking about women's voices, it's considered head voice, which is more or less the same thing. So yeah, it's not that much different. We're just singing in our head voice. <laughs> just like women. <laughs> What is so exciting, especially about watching some of your YouTube and other clips that are out bouncing out there, uh, is your voice spans over three octaves. So while most countertenors are usually singing in the alto, you know, contralto range, you have a high C that Renee Fleming and Leontine Bryce would uh, envy. Uh, and I'm just <laughs> wondering, uh, are there roles that you could take up that might highlight this outstanding high range of yours? I think Xerxes is a perfect role because it was 
It was originally for a male mezzo-soprano castrata, but he sings, and it's mostly in the soprano repertoire. It's mostly in soprano range. So um, I can add in some high notes and explore my voice with this. So I think Xerxes is the perfect example for that. Amazing. You know, as you go through your career and, and move into the space, uh, have inhabited the space as a countertenor, I wonder if there are, um, do you come up across misconceptions around, you know, your voice and the types of roles you play? What are some of the things that you hear and how do you how do you counter that? There's a lot. There's um, some negatives and some positives. I think the most that I hear that I'm trying to break away from is that countertenors can only do early music. Like we are in a box and that's the only thing that we can do, which I believe that we are capable of doing more romantic, new music, classical music. I believe we can do as much as we want and we shouldn't stay in that box. If we don't you know, want right to. now, Stephanie Blythe is preparing uh, to take up the baritone role of Johnny Skiki following her Don Jose back in 2021. Mm -hmm. uh, as our art form begins to sort of explore this type of fluidity and gender roles, uh, what might that mean for you as a performer who sings outside of the traditional uh, male range? The sky's the limit. I feel like when I talk about boxes, we don't have to, at this time, worry about what's in your pants for a role. Worry about, you know, you know what the character is supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. We can really take charge on what type of music we want to sing and what story we want to tell. And I think it is an exciting time right now. And as a countertenor, because I can do both ranges, which are traditionally female and traditionally male, which is whatever, that doesn't mean anything. I can play around a little bit more. And I think that's exciting and fun. Wow, it's going to be exciting to see what comes next. Mm -hmm. uh, well, guess we should talk about Xerxes. Uh, when you first arrive on stage uh, in the first act, you almost immediately are singing one of Handel's most popular uh, and familiar tunes, Ombra Maifu. Uh, how does one prepare oneself uh, to step out and be ready for this big aria so soon after, you know, not having like maybe an act or two to warm up? Pray. <laughs> That's all, the only thing you can do. Warm yourself up as much as possible. Um, not too much because you have a two-hour opera. But yeah, and Ombra Maifu, I've been singing that since the very beginning of my career. So it's very well in my body. So it's the aria that I'm most excited to sing. It's, I'm glad that it just starts at the very beginning. That's great. <laughs> you know, in 1738, Xerxes was not a hit with the public. It was both serious and comedic, and that wasn't common in the form at the time. I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the dramatic challenges in taking up this role of Xerxes. Yeah, because um, Xerxes himself as a character, he is very hot and cold. He can be very mad one second and then be very loving at the other, which is also kind of comedic in that way. Like to see someone that that kind of crazy <laughs> in, a, in an opera and how he reacts to other people around him. So really understanding, trying to get into his mindset of how he feels with his brother and Romilda and all the other characters is, I think, the most funnest part. Other than the Arias, they're great, but learning, you know, his mental state is what intrigues me. So would you say then that is your favorite, uh, so your favorite part of the opera then? Your favorite moments of this opera? Yeah, in the rest, it's when he really one second like there's a, a recipe when he um, is talking to Romilda and Arsamene and he wants Romilda. So he banishes um, his brother 
really no reason, no proof or anything like that. And also very sweet to Romina at the same time. So just going back and forth like that, that I think that's really fun to learn. Getting to play all those dualities. There's, yeah. there's a lot of ups and downs there, mm-hmm. without a doubt. So in November, we at Detroit Opera, we welcomed Babatunde Akimboboye to Detroit. He was singing our Valentin and Faust. And while he was here, he really spoke about the importance of social media and branding. And we know that you have a faithful social media following yourself. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and also about kind of this new reality for opera singers in 2023. Yeah, I think this is also exciting. As singers... For centuries, we relied on certain medias and certain opera houses to give us recognition to the audience, which is also very great. But now we can also put our own personal selves directly to the audience in that way. And I think as young singers, having that social media platform allows you to grow your base, make your own career as well. I don't believe that I would have had a career if I didn't have social media. I think I sing well, but when I first started as a Black countertenor, there was not many around. There's still not many around. So I feel like if I did not have that connection to the world, to the opera community, I wouldn't be as welcomed as I am now. In the work of an opera singer offstage, Kimon, I mean, certainly your social media presence is is work. You know, you're cultivating, you know, an audience in that way. You have a background in arts management. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Does that also help to kind of buoy your work off the stage? Does that change how you think about your career and and your work you know you're not coming from it just from a singer background you have this additional kind of skill set as well yeah i believe it affected my viewpoint on my career how i'm going to manage it in in the future because i have that background i know the the other side of it if if you will i remember right after i was working at glimmerglass and i was a development intern there so i got to see how they communicate with the singers, what they're looking for in their in their videos, what are they looking for in, you know, representation of the singer. And I just took all of that and writing it down, putting it in my mental, you know, diary. So when the next year, next two years, two years next summer, when I actually applied for Glimmer Glass, I was able to get in because I knew what they were looking for. And also I knew what was good for social media. So my audition videos, they were built for the audition, you know, the criteria for the audition, but they were also somewhat more relatable to the audience, to social media. So I was able to use both of those videos for both of that. I'm just uh, curious. Uh, I, I've watched your wonderful uh, masterclass with uh, Joyce uh, Donato at the Met in 2019. Of course, right after that, the pandemic hit. Just wondering, how did the pandemic sort of change the course of uh, of your your trajectory? Well, I guess just like everybody else, I, I had some gigs lined up my my first debuts and they had to be canceled. But I also think that it was a silver lining. I got to expose myself more on social media, do more competitions, which competitions moved to, you know, online versions of them. So, yeah, I, I really got to spread my wings in that way. So I don't think when it comes to actual, you know, finances, things like that. But my career, I believe, flourished during the pandemic. Wow. Can you talk about your history uh, with Detroit and what it means to come here now to do Xerxes? Uh, it's been, you know, 10 years since we uh, lasted a broke opera. Well, I don't have much of connection until now, and I'm very happy about that with Christine and um, Yvonne. But looking back at all of my favorite singers who 
grew up in Detroit and worked here, like George Shirley, having that type of person there is something I, I, I've always wanted to follow in the footsteps. And I'm so happy that I get to sing on the same stage that he has sung on. Uh, well, you had mentioned your mother and getting uh, music, also your brother. You have a twin brother who also sings. So I'm wondering, are there two of you running around, two outstanding uh, countertenors running around? the? <laughs> well, actually, he can sing countertenor. There is a video of us on the tour of the American Spiritual Ensemble. He is fully uh -huh. a tenor. You know, if you ask him to sing, he'll be a tenor. But um, the director was like, hmm, you both were in the boys' choir. You both could do this. So he asked us both to do a duet of us both singing in countertenor. So um, if you look up the American Spiritual Ensemble, you'll see both of us singing as countertenors. Fantastic. Well, as we come to, I think, our, our final moments, we thank you again for your time and for being with us. And I just wonder, Kiman, is there anything else that you would share with our audiences in Detroit about Xerxes, about the production before they come? I believe the show is going to be super fun. The whole cast is at the top of their game. You're going to have fun. You're going to laugh. You might be a little pissed, which is okay. But yeah, it's going to be an overall good time. Great. Thank you so much. What a treat to finally see you and to speak with you after I've listened to every possible thing <laughs> about you. And I got more excited with every listen and view. Uh, so we can't wait to, to see you uh, just in a couple of weeks. Yes, I'm, I'm super excited. And thank you, too, to everyone listening to our glimpse into Detroit Opera's production of Xerxes. We hope to see you at the Detroit Opera House for this exciting production, which opens Saturday, March 4th, and runs through Sunday, March 12th at the Detroit Opera House. To purchase tickets to Xerxes or to find more information on the production, visit our website at DetroitOpera.org. You can also connect with us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much to Jake Neer for his assistance in producing this podcast, and we'll see you at the opera. <laughs>